Well, hello, friends and listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by Trends from the folks over at The Hustle. Before we start the show, I want you to take a moment to imagine this crazy scenario. Your smartest friend travels back in time, 18 months from the future, and specifically dials it to 18 months from the future to 18 months prior, which is today. And they tell you what the hottest trends are, which startups become unicorns, which opportunities to place your bets on. That'd be pretty nice, huh? Well, you don't need to dream because Trends, a new publication from The Hustle, the folks who bring you their biz tech newsletter to over a million subscribers, which is more than Wall Street Journal. They've enlisted a team of market researchers, journalists, and entrepreneurs to spot the next big opportunities in business today. Every week, subscribers get a newsletter loaded with the latest on opportunities ready to explode, startups on the rise, even actionable details on how you can capitalize on the opportunities that they present. It's like a weekly playbook on the hottest startup opportunities you haven't heard of. Go see what I'm talking about at trends.co slash BTL below the line, trends.co slash BTL. There you can sign up for two weeks of unlimited access for just a dollar. You'll get the newsletter, access to their private members-only forum, their members-only website, case studies, everything for just a dollar. That's a steal. Again, it's trends.co slash BTL. Now on to the episode. Today is a deep dive episode, meaning it's it's a little bit different than the regular scheduled, regularly scheduled episodes. And it is with a founder, Diego, who this is recorded, this was unaltered, recorded as we met and chatted about his startup. And I recorded because he had come, I think it was the day before he came by and he was pitching me his, his startup and he's going through Y Combinator and I went through Y Combinator incubator program here in, in Silicon Valley. And he started to pitch his idea and about three minutes in, I said, Hey, hold on, hold on. Could we record this? Could we actually sit down and record this as a podcast episode? And and just release it to the world so that people could see what it was like to have a an angel investor coffee. And I think so many people think that these things are like, they think that they're like, uh, I don't know, Shark Tank and, and that it's adversarial and that the investor sits there wanting to poke holes. But for angel investors and, and very early stage investors, even through Series A, or Series B investors, the best ones, they want to understand. They're not trying to poke holes to um, to try to undermine uh, the, the founder or or try to surprise them or catch them in, in a crazy scenario. They want to imagine what the world could be like with that founder. And that was what I loved about my favorite angel investors and 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 it's how I get coffees with with founders as well. And so I thought, man, I've never heard 
I've never come across a an actual investor founder conversation recorded before. So I would love to record this. And because of time and because of not wanting to condense the coffee down to, I think we only had maybe 30 minutes that day. And so I, I said, you know, in case it goes 40, 45 minutes or maybe an hour, is it okay if you, if we did this uh, today or another time with microphones and we ended up doing it the next day. And Diego was really kind enough to do this. This was six months ago because he asked for it not to be released until they had formally launched their company, Pachama. So I'm not going to tell you what happens in the the actual coffee. I'm not going to tell you whether I invest or not. Um, I'm going to let you kind of listen to the conversation and just see what, what one of these types of investor coffees is actually like. So without further ado, let's get into it with Diego Saez-Gill of Pachama. This is Below the Line. We live. Diego, got a drink. I have a drink gift for you. This is Rebel. Amazing. Ashwagandha Ashwagandha spicy chai. Spicy chai. I'm excited. Super herb power coconut milk elixir. Yes, I have never had this before. So we got craft brewed Assam and Ayurvedic spices. For most people, myself included, I have no idea what words I just said, but <laughs> superpower, I, superpower. I do like that. I did hear super empower. I also like that it on the bottle. It's a yellow bottle with a red, red logo rebel. It says righteous plant alchemy, which that sounds pretty cool. Nice. I'm, gonna be honest, I'm all for pretty cool. <laughs> powerful elixirs. Yes. <laughs> so cheers, my friend. Cheers. I kind of only partially have any idea of what we're getting into today, but it's basically for listeners. Uh, I met Diego very briefly, and I said, and he was telling me about his uh, the company that he's starting right now. He was just in Y Combinator, and they just had demo day, and he's fundraising. And so I said, "Hey, actually, this is super strange. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but would you be down if we recorded this on my podcast?" and and you know we can edit out any um, specific data or answers that you don't want out there publicly. But you know, wouldn't it be cool for a first-time founder to hear what an actual angel investor founder type of conversation is like? Because I know, and you started a few businesses with one of your early meetings. It was like going and you thought it was like going to get a bank loan. Exactly. I mean, I wish uh, eight, uh, nine years ago now when I started my first uh, startups that I knew what I was getting into. I, you know, I mean, in my mind, coming from Argentina, and we can talk about my, my background, but uh, I had no idea what raising investment in the U.S. meant. Um, yeah. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, and neither did I. And so I've never heard a angel investor, I'm sure there's one online, but I've never heard one recorded. And this is a right. legit one. Like this is, this is not made up. You're currently fundraising. And I'll tell why I was really interested to meet you, you know, it's for for complete 1000% context and and honesty. But uh, but also I have not, you know, told you like, I'm in, but let's do this recording. It's like a, a very uh, legitimate recording of of mm-hmm. a real quote unquote coffee with with sure. investor. Um, and I'll say, you know, up front that, you know, outside of our of us meeting, 
one of the things that was really interesting about your background, and this is the power to, you know, for warm intros or the power of just building something really cool is a friend texted me knowing that, knowing that I went through YC and invested in, in um, startups and said, hey, there's a really cool company called Pachama and didn't know how to pronounce it. I didn't know what I was really looking at when I went to to your website, pachama.com. Right. So, but I will tell you this, I said, I right when I loaded the website within three seconds, maybe two, maybe one, I was like, wow, this is some really cool design. Hmm. Really well done. And I, I'm a big believer in how you do anything is how you do everything. Sure. And so even in something, something within two seconds of being able to see that a, a site is well spaced out, sure. well designed. And I imagine because you've you've been building businesses for, for many years now, you probably weren't the designer, but it, it meant that you knew who to find, find the expertise if if it wasn't yours. And so within two, three seconds, I was like, okay, this is and I and when I say well designed, I mean like it was just evenly spaced out. <laughs> Each detail was cool. had uh, attention paid to it, and, and it was very clear. And then I got back on the text chain with the friend, and he's and um, I asked the friend who said, um, "Yeah, one someone else I know is is investing, and it's a really smart fund." So I was like, "Okay, these these little things are starting to add together in the first five seconds." So Y Combinator uh, friend telling me about it, saying it was cool, saying that his his friend. Uh, from a, a well-known fund was also investing and then the website design. Right. And I kind of understood the concept, but really it wasn't like, oh, I have a thesis about this space or like I know sure. I know much about this sector. It was a few of these things. And then I just thought, okay, let me reach out. I, you know, it takes me 20 seconds to write an email to reach out to them and no idea what will happen from there. And then you reach back out to me and what made you want to reach out to, to me or re- reply to that email? Cause I also, yeah. you know, fire off cold emails weekly sure. that don't get replied to. Yeah. And that week we were doing, uh, the demo day of, uh, YCs who were actually having a lot of conversations with investors, but, uh, I knew about your company. So even though I didn't know about you specifically, I was like, oh, I, I know this company. I personally now have a preference for investors who were founders or operators, right? I think at the level of empathy and um, really help that you can give, having been on the arena is uh, super important on an investor. So I was like, yeah, I'll respond to this guy and, uh, you know, let's chat. Well, awesome. Well, and, <laughs> and here we are. And and one of the first things that I, I like to ask founders is just, hey, what have you been up to today? Sure. It's literally so, so uh, yeah. straightforward and simple, but it can... You know, so, it always leads to interesting uh, totally. answers. Uh, today, we actually had a kickoff meeting of uh, the design of our front-end product. And our, our product has two parts, and we can talk about that. And, and, and it's you know funny that you mentioned design, because for us, design is important and details do matter. Um, and I think that in what we're trying to build, uh, being able to communicate kind of like a complex ideas in a complex market in a way that is understood by both a farmer in South America or a corporate buyer in London uh, is super important. So today we had a team meeting in which we spoke about uh, the scope of the front-end product that we want to build. And we also spoke about the product development cycle that we will follow from now on. And then I had a bunch of calls. We are closing uh, our, our round of funding now. So, you know, it's like 
a lot of things that the CEO of a startup has to do at the same time. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You got to build, build the company and fundraise for it. Right. Um, what is, and how big is the team right now? And this is it. I mean, we're kicking off. This is. Yeah, the, we're five. Other conversations right go. now. Awesome. And how many co-founders? Two co-founders. Okay. Yeah. And how did you meet your co-founders? So my co-founder actually from the Argentinian mafia of Silicon Valley, <laughs> uh, I uh, did a barbecue uh, in my place um, last year, at the beginning of last year, and a friend of mine brought a friend of his um, who happened to be also an Argentinian who was dating an American girl who was my case too at the time, and we just talked about that. and. Mm. Um, and then we, we started becoming friends with this guy. I didn't know what he did for a living, right? I was in the state of my life before starting this company, which I really wanted to not talk about work. I mm -hmm. wanted to talk, connect, you know, and I wanted to talk about ideas and I wanted to talk about other things. So I was with this guy for three get-togethers without knowing what the guy did. Mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't know what I did. And then afterwards... As I'm researching this idea and this market, I'm talking with a friend in common who put us in touch. And he told me, dude, you have to talk to Tomas about this idea. Why? Because he's actually exploring a similar idea and he's a machine learning engineer and that's what you need, <laughs> right? Oh, wow. So, and then we met with Tomas and, uh, and in fact, he was exploring a similar problem with similar technologies, but a different idea. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and I told complementary skill yeah, sets, very complementary skill sets. And by by that time, we were already kind of friends. Yeah, and we were like, okay, let's explore this idea together. Um, then afterwards, uh, the group of Argentinians that were friends uh, with uh, were going to Burning Man, so we decided to go to Burning Man together. We camped next to each other, and we you know spent some time in Burning Man, hanging out. And then when we came back from Burning Man, we decided to you know do this project together. And had you already uh, kind of emotionally decided to do it together before Burning Man? Were you already kind of the pieces there? Or was it something that um, that kind of solidified because of Burning Man and the experience? I think definitely... Way outside of work there. Yeah, definitely, you know, sharing uh, the Burning Man experience with anybody it really makes you uh, see the other person in, in, in a context of... Uh, uh, in which you have to show your resourcefulness and your true self in a way. Uh, so that was definitely kind of like a final uh, element of our dating, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> when and when did founders? Have you been to Burning Man multiple times? No, it wasn't the first time. Really? Also. Okay. Yeah. What was it? What did you think it was going to be like, and what was it like? I've never been. So I had a lot of friends who had told me about Burning Man for many years, and I wanted to go. And by the time I was going, I was like, oh, I'm so. So many people have told me about it that probably my expectations are, you know, uh, too much. Mm -hmm. But no, they weren't. It is amazing. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think it's, it's difficult to describe it. You have to go. But it's so many things at the same time. It's a, it's a social experiment. It's, a, um, uh, it's, a, it's an art piece in which it's a collective art piece in which you, each one is contributing to the art piece. So it's mm -hmm. a living art piece. And were you it's, into this kind of stuff already? Were you already kind of wired for this stuff 10 so, years ago? Or is this something that you kind of waited into yeah. more and more being in California. Good question. Whatnot. Well, I mean, 11 years ago, I decided to leave my country, Argentina, and go and explore the world. And I moved to Barcelona, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think that I always had an explorer uh, mindset. I always looked for uh, opportunities to expand my understanding of the world, 
right? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I was predisposed to a burning my experience. Uh, that being said, when I came to the US, I felt into the trap of business and success and bullshit, you know? Um, and I was running that rat race for many years. And in a way, I, I departed from the more exploratory uh, path of, mm. uh, of a Burning Man type of experience. And that year, which was sort of like a pivotal year for me, and I think we spoke a little bit about it uh, the other day, I had sold my previous company, which ended up in kind of like a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And I decided to take a sabbatical year. And that year I came back to explore a lot of things, to uh, use this opportunity to re-evaluate, take perspective, re-evaluate my life, re-evaluate my understanding of uh, the world and in every uh, aspect of it. Yeah. And uh, so in that sense, Burning Man was perfect there. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me, and something that I, I always like asking is tell me what you're doing before Pachama. And yeah. Yeah. So what were you doing before for Pachama and before YC? Yeah. When did you start working on Pachama as well, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, again, I after Barcelona, I came to the US uh, and from New York, I started my first startup. This was uh, eight years ago. Mm. The first startup was the first mobile app to book budget accommodation from your phone. Before Airbnb had an app, before Booking.com had an app, before Hotel Tonight uh, existed, mm -hmm. I think. And it was an app called We Hostels, focused on hostels and bed and breakfast and different type of budget accommodations. In Europe, I was backpacking, so I needed that. And uh, the iPhone came out, didn't have a lot of apps. Uh, so with a friend, we built a booking app for hostels. And then we started connecting hostels and uh, getting travelers uh, on board. And that's when my, my first startup. With that startup, I went to my first angel investors meetings uh, and yeah. did a terrible job <laughs> because I couldn't raise capital for, you know, like two years almost. I was struggling in New York trying to get uh, the startup off the ground until we, we actually did raise a seed round with that company. And then two years later, we got acquired by uh, Student Universe, which is a company in Boston that now is part of Flight Center, which is another bigger uh, travel company. I went and worked for them for some time. And then I went to visit my family in Argentina, bringing a bunch of gifts on my suitcase and the airline lost my suitcase. And that led me to a second startup idea, which was how come there is not a suitcase that you can track? So with uh, another friend, we decided to come together and do it. And we launched a crowdfunding campaign that went viral. We ended up raising $2.5 million on pre-orders on wow. our uh, launch. And with that, we got the attention of YC and got selected to be part of the Winter 15 batch in YC. What was the company called? The company was called Blue Smart. Okay. And we were, you know, the, I guess, the inventors of the smart suitcase that can yeah. be tracked. Uh, yeah. This was an industry that hadn't seen innovation for many years. We came out with this product and uh, all of a sudden, a lot of other startups and some of the bigger companies started launching smart suitcases. Um, and uh, that company flew quite high, actually. We raised a Series B. Uh, from a Chinese fund, a uh, whole story of fundraising in China. <laughs> and uh, we got to 60 employees between China, the US and Argentina, you know, shipped tens of thousands of products worldwide. And everything ended up kind of suddenly with the airlines all of a sudden banning lithium ion batteries after the Samsung phones started getting on fire. Uh, I don't know if you remember yeah, those I years. remember that. Yeah. Um, How so, long ago was that? Two years ago? Almost two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this, you know, a few Samsung phones got on fire on airplanes. The airlines freaked out. Um, one association of airlines called IATA sent a safety 
a suggestion to not allow non-removable batteries on smart suitcases. And now there were several brands doing smart mm. suitcases and our suitcases had no removable batteries. So uh, that put us in a very difficult situation because we had just placed an order for 50,000 units with our uh, Chinese manufacturers. So we had no option but to go and sell the company in a stressful situation, right? Yeah. Um, we sold the company to Travel Pro, which is a you know big luggage company based in Florida. And yeah, after that, I decided to take some sabbatical after you know almost, I guess, seven or eight years of just running, building companies. Right. And what it, was and with with Blue Smart on a scale of one to ten, what was that entrepreneurial experience like? Man, it was a ten, I guess. From you know, with ten. Uh, 10 and minus 10, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very high moments and very low moments, for sure. What did what comes to mind when you think of the low moments? Oof, having to do a layoff and, you know, fire the majority of the people that you work so hard to hire. And it's not their fault, it's your fault, or it's, you know, the world's fault. Yeah. And what is, uh, when you got on the other side of BlueSmart, did you, did you know, okay, it's, I'm ready to, I'm going to build something better? bigger, stronger? Yeah. I mean, I think the, 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 the most positive thing I took from that experience is that you can, it's, it's going to sound cheesy, but you can change the world. You can incept ideas into the culture. We incepted the idea of smart luggage. That's an idea that didn't exist, mm -hmm. right? An industry that had been around for centuries. The luggage is one of the first products that ever existed. And yet these two Argentinian guys come along launch a crowdfunding campaign, and all of a sudden there is a category called smart luggage. And hundreds of thousands of uh, units of smart luggage are sold in the world. Right. I was like, wow, that's powerful. If we can have that power, we'd rather use it for something important and useful and to try to solve some of the biggest problems of the planet that we have many right now, mm -hmm. right? So I, I felt a big sense of responsibility and, and a sense of empowerment, a combination mm -hmm. of empowerment and responsibility after that experience. At the same time, I needed to sort of like use that crashing against the wall opportunity to reevaluate myself and the way that I do a business, the way that I do startups, right? So I, yeah, I, I did take a lot. That? Well, there are so many things that, and this is important for first time entrepreneurs, I think there are so many things that you learn from how things are done and they are not necessarily the best way that things uh, can be done. Uh, in terms of building companies. And I think that it's super important to go and uh, feel what is true for you and what uh, do you think is going to be the most uh, sustainable and effective way to build a company, right? And what do, you, what do you mean by that? What's kind of examples or specifics that you're thinking about that was unsustainable before yeah. or intentional things you're doing now? different sure well i mean the, the, in silicon valley there is this you know um uh, obsession with speed right and blitz scaling and all these kind of things right which is super important is what makes uh, silicon valley a place in which you know so many world-changing innovations come from but when it comes to speed you have to pace it and you have to build a strong foundation first um when it comes to uh the team you know for example we're having the intention of having a distributed team now and accessing capital, you know, the, the the talent of people all, all over the world, and this is something that might be well. Now it's becoming more common, but setting your own rules, right? We think that having a balanced lifestyle in which you, you have time to meditate and to do 
sports activity and to have time with your friends and family is 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 very important, right? If you want to build a long term organization. And when you when you discuss those things and if they come up in a investor conversation, do you know that uh, like are you thinking okay this this is my truth, so I'm going to say yeah. it, but it might it might be the exact opposite of what an investor on the other side might want to hear. And I might not want to have these investors, right? right? That's another thing I changed my mind. Like before I would take money from anybody who give me money, right? And that wasn't a good thing. You have to find investors who are aligned with your values, with your vision, with your mission. Mm-hmm. That's super important. And I did have an investor actually asking me, what are you willing to sacrifice to build this company? And I was like, well, I don't think I need to sacrifice anything. I'm against the idea of sacrifice. I am all the for effort and determination and putting all my energy. I'm willing to put all my energy for the next 30 years on this project because I truly care about the mission that we're working for. I would do it for free. This is the thing I choose to do, right? Mm-hmm. Out of uh, love for the mission, right? But I don't think that uh, having a mindset of sacrifice is the right way to do it. So, because, you know, the moment you start sacrificing, it becomes a burden. And mm-hmm. then you hate working for the company, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah. Right, yeah. Sacrifice is like, if every action is somewhat of an exchange or economic action, if you're getting the raw end of the deal, yeah, well, then there's going to be, that's an unsustainable approach. Right. Um, you'll, you'll stop making that economic choice. Right. Unless, uh, or in the alternative is, each choice pays back. Sure. Compounding benefits, energizing but, benefits. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, I did in this time, one of the things I explore is Buddhism and meditation. And one of the things I learned from Buddhism is that the whole idea of sacrifice is just a tag that you put to, uh, to some the suffer- suffering is optional, right? Pain is unavoidable. Suffering is optional, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that having a, a f- bringing that philosophy to the way that you uh, do things, I think is important. Or for us, uh, one of the things that that I think about pretty often is, and this might be relevant for for listeners, is what is so powerful about Silicon Valley is that you bump into people and founders that that say they're going to change the world, and they ever mean every single word, <laughs> and or they said that's their intention is to change the entire world, mm. and and truly mean it. They're mm. obviously charlatans and, and people that um, Machiavellian sure. learn to say those things. And sure. then there are the people that it's just, it is, it's very easy to see through those things. And there are people that you can tell mean it. Yeah. And obviously people are listening, they can't see it, but I can see that you mean absolutely every word that you're saying. That is such a powerful thing on the other side of the conversation, on the other side of the table uh, for an investor to, to see. Like that's what's going through my head right now. It's like, right. You're saying these things that are cliche because you know that they're cliches because they're incredibly insightful. Right. Um, not because it's like, oh, this is a card that I can play sure. in this conversation. Sure. And so, um, okay, so how long was it between Blue Smart and, and what was the idea maze? One of the things I yeah. love asking a repeat founders about is what was the idea maze sure. to choose this path? Now that you know how painful yeah. it can be, yes. suffering is optional, but pain is is, is uh, yeah unavoidable. That's it's always interesting. Okay, how did you choose this idea? And yeah, yeah, walk me through that. So I took a year and a half of sabbatical. It's not that I set a deadline. I was just okay. I I will take some time 
to find out what I do next. And frankly, I didn't know if I was going to start a new company. As you said, it's so hard that, and this is something important for aspiring founders, don't do a startup because you want to make money or have a job or uh, any of these, you know, kind of like uh, non-essential reasons. Only do a startup if you have no option, <laughs> but to work on this problem, right? And so I did take a, a, a year and a half. In that year and a half, I did a bunch of things, especially uh, intellectual exploration, intellectual and spiritual explorations, I would say. Mm. I first wanted to know what was the purpose that I was called to at the mm. deep level. What was the mission that I wanted to entrust myself with uh, for the next 20 years that was coming not from my ego, not from society, but from a higher sense of self, right? I, I do believe that we come to this world with a gift and the purpose of your life is to give away that gift, to contribute to your community. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know uh, what was that. So I did a lot of inner work and I can tell you some of the fun things that I did, but um, so I started from that more spiritual place and then I, I came down to a more intellectual side. And, and then the idea maze actually, so once I, I, I basically got an inner answer that what I wanted to work on was on helping heal and regenerate our planet, right? So we humans in the last 200 years made this beautiful mess uh, with the industrial revolution, which was important because we took uh, most of humanity out of poverty, but in doing so, we destroy nature, the forest, half of the forest of the planet, and we put out so much carbon into the atmosphere that now we're causing the biggest uh, warming on millions of years, right? Mm. And, and how did you come to this realization or these observations? Were these observations you're already aware of or have you been aware of for many years and you're just listening to, to an internal voice to address them? Or was it mm. something that you hadn't paid much attention to? I definitely always had an environmental awareness and had uh, a love for nature. I guess that uh, I had in a way uh, negated it or, or like... Just, just, you know, focus on other problems. And, mm -hmm. and then definitely going to China and seeing manufacturing in China and pollution in Beijing mm -hmm. and then being part of the industrial machine that is producing products that are then going to be garbage and are putting out uh, carbon into the atmosphere. I saw it with my own eyes and I was part of the problem, if you want, mm -hmm. uh, with, with my previous company. Um, then I went to the Amazon, as I told you, uh, the, the other day, and I spent some time in the middle of the jungle, in the Amazon rainforest, in the limit between Peru, Brazil, and Bolivia. And I saw deforestation happening in the Amazon. And I saw at the same time, the beauty and the, uh, you know, value that the Amazon provides to the planet, right? It's the lungs of the planet, as, as they call them. So all these things, in a way, brought me to an awakening about the urgency to act on climate change is definitely the, the biggest problem, but it's the environmental, the way that we treat our home, the way that we treat our planet, the only planet that we know that can support life. And I'm all for going to Mars, but this planet is good enough. If we don't treat this planet well, how can right. uh, we try to, you know, uh, you know, treat other planet well? Yeah. So with that realization in mind, I was like, okay, how can I turn this intention into a business idea for a technology company that can scale and actually have a meaningful impact on solving it? Mm. So then that, that led me to reading a lot of books. Uh, there's one book in particular that uh, first made me realize the potential of reforestation 
uh, as a way to compensate climate change. And that book was Earth in Human Hands, written by uh, an astrobiologist from NASA who talks about the planet is now under human hands. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do with it? We, we can either destroy it or we can become the stewards of spaceship Earth, right? Uh, in that book, it talks about how just reforesting the planet and avoiding deforestation can be uh, super impactful to uh, solve climate change. And then that led me to, okay, why are we not doing it? That led me to another book called Why Forest, Why Now? Uh, it's a book written by two scientists who were advisors to the UN and to several organizations on the frameworks by which carbon offsets included forest, right? And we can talk about what carbon offsets are. You know, well, and and who, rec who is recommending these books to you? Google, I guess. Yeah. Any friends yeah. in your network that were really yeah. interested in this? For space? sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I definitely started talking with friends. I started reaching out with ex to experts. Actually, after reading Why Forest Why Now, I reached out, reach out to the author and she responded to me. And then I, I went and I grabbed a coffee with her at her office in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and that conversation was super important because it validated a lot of things that I was trying to you know, put together. So and, and just to go below the line here for a sec, the, uh, what's going through my head is a, as an investor is, holy shit, this guy is like not only is, has he started other businesses, uh, but this is such a core. And I don't want you to get too excited. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Diego, because that'll affect your pitch. But there's something really interesting, uh, or there are a lot of really interesting things that are stacking up of starting multiple businesses. And, but actually, way more important than that is you're listening to a problem. You're not out there finding one. You're actively like kind of oblivious to whether you find one or not. You're not looking for a company to start right. for it to mean something else or to have some financial outcome. It is, you're listening to, to different problems out there. And then from kind of that's, that's a thematic point all the way to a tactical, you read a book, you reach out to the author and then where is the author? Located? In Washington, DC. Did you fly to DC yeah. to, to meet them? Yeah. And that's, you don't hear founders talk about that, that stuff very often. Um, certainly don't hear people with ideas for startups to talk about, you know, I just emailed and then flew over there. It's, yeah, it's something that you probably yeah, did because it's look, in your wiring, but, but it's rare. Another thing I, I was trying, I, another thing I did on this intermediate uh, period was to analyze all my negative patterns as a founder in the past. Mm. One of my negative patterns was to jump into ideas too quickly, right? Mm. I got excited about an idea and was like, let's do it, right? So that was the case with the suitcase, the smart suitcase idea and the case with the uh, hostel booking idea. So that's great, actually, to get started. As Walt Disney said, the, the best way to, to get started is to stop talking and start doing. And I'm all for that. At the same time, I do think there is a lot of value on thoughtfully researching an idea, being skeptical of your own assumptions, mm -hmm. right? So one of the things I wanted to do this time was like, think of all the aspects of the idea and how this idea could manifest into the world and start getting from smarter people than me all the weak points on my thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why this time around, I, I took a longer time, spoke with more people. And in fact, I pivoted the idea several times on that process. Without writing a line of code, I was able to pivot several times, right? Mm -hmm. Just yeah. by talking to people, writing notes and reading a lot, you know? Okay. So tell me about uh, Pachama. Okay. What is Pachama and what, what are you building with it? Sure. So 
climate change is one of the biggest challenges for our generation. The problem that caused climate change is that we put too much carbon out in the atmosphere. At this point, we need to not only reduce emissions by replacing our energy matrix and stop burning fossil fuels and do it with renewable energies, but we also need to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. The most effective way that we have to do it is growing trees. Trees and nature in general, like biomass, converts CO2 into biomass and oxygen, right? So that fact was recognized by the UN and they introduced a framework by which companies who forest, who, who reforest or who avoid deforestation on a certain forest can get certificates that then can be sold to companies that need to compensate their carbon emissions. So this is called the carbon credits market, right? Mm -hmm. It's an idea that was put forward first on the Kyoto Agreement, which was the predecessor to the Paris Agreement. And the intention is that the companies, governments, and consumers at some point that on their activities are putting out carbon into the atmosphere can compensate by supporting the projects that are taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, right? So the idea is actually makes a lot of sense but it's very complex to implement, right? Because you need... So it's basically offset what you're putting into the atmosphere by growing trees and supporting right. forests That's right. Uh, for reforestation projects. Right. So and, are, and for the record, I know nothing about this, this space. For listeners, I, I don't know much about the space. Sure. And so I am going to it not knowing about the space and wanting to know, can Diego actually walk walk me through, sure. simplify sure. Uh, a space that is that is uh, quite complex. Yeah. That is actively like, I'm going into it trying not to learn too much about it to right. wonder uh, in my head what I'm kind of doing. Not to tip you off again, Diego. Sure. <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. But uh, uh, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, can Diego get someone that knows nothing about this to care about it? Yeah. And, 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 and I care about uh, yeah. climate change, but there's nothing about this space because that is what a founder is going to need to do over and over and over again, recruiting sure. employees, re-recruiting, motivating, recruiting customers, yeah. uh, getting press. Can they evangelize and gather someone, get someone's attention within yeah. you know, two minutes? Uh, and definitely one of the challenges of this idea is it's very complex. It's a market that nobody knows anything about it. So one of the things I do when I explain the idea is first I try to qualify my audience and generally, in this case, I didn't do it because I know there's other people that I don't know any, uh, anything about in the other side of the mic, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the first things I do, I'll say, do you know anything about carbon credits? Mm -hmm. And the person tells me, no, I have no idea. Okay. And then I explain what carbon credits are. Mm -hmm. So again, carbon credits are this mechanism by which companies can compensate their carbon emissions by supporting projects that either reduce emissions or recapture carbon from the atmosphere. Now, there are several sources of carbon credits, but the source with the biggest potential to actually capture carbon from the atmosphere is forest, doing reforestation or avoidance of deforestation. There are other sources like sustainable agriculture and soil actually has a, a big potential as well. There are technologies that are being developed at the moment that are, is called air capture, in which you can basically suck up air from the air and separate CO2 and make materials with the carbon and then release the oxygen. But these are very early technologies, right? Mm -hmm. So today, the most effective technology that we have is photosynthesis and trees converting CO2 into biomass. Mm -hmm. So the problem is twofold, actually. In order to issue credible 
carbon credits from forests, you need to be able to measure effectively how much carbon a forest captures, right? So there are several protocols that have been designed to do that. But as of today, most of the methodologies involve sending people to the forest to measure the trees. So you basically have to go with a crew and you know, count trees on a sample and measure them. And with that, you estimate how much carbon is stored there and how much carbon the forest captures every year. Mm-hmm. Now, today, we have high-resolution, high-frequency satellite images. We have LiDAR, the technology that's been uh, used a lot now by self-driving cars, with which you can scan in three-dimensional uh, shape uh, any environment. We have drones that can fly long distances and recharge autonomously. Mm. So all these technologies can be put at the service of measuring carbon capture by forest. And that's one of the areas that we're working on helping develop using, if you want, autonomous sources of data collection to estimate carbon capture by forest. And then the second part of the problem... Meaning like this this number of acreages or hectares of, of... Uh, forest are capturing this amount or this estimated amount of carbon and therefore offsetting, right. you know, you plant this many, this, this acreage and it's going to offset it this amount, but you can't just put the seeds into the ground. You actually have to show right. it's actually offsetting. Right. Um, you know, and then you, you have to be able to monitor afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is happening on the forest that received the carbon credits, right? So the first part is, you know, let's make it easier and faster and cheaper and more reliable to estimate how much carbon a forest captures so that the forest owner can get a certificate faster, mm. right? The second part is that once they obtain the certificate that they can sell to the companies that need to offset their carbon emissions, make it easier for the parties to connect, right? So in the other hand, you have companies in, in the buying side, there are compliance buyers and voluntary buyers. Compliance buyers are companies that are required by law, by regulations, to offset their emissions. And this is something that started happening more and more, especially after the Paris Agreement, in which the European Union, for example, and California, for example, as well, sets targets or caps for companies, the main polluters, after which they need to compensate their emissions, right? Mm -hmm. This is a a regulated market. Mm -hmm. And then you have a voluntary market with companies such as Google and Apple and Facebook and Coca-Cola and Disney that decided voluntarily to measure their carbon footprint and compensate their carbon footprint by buying carbon credits, right? Mm. So you have these buyers in one side, you have the forest owners in the other side who- and What does a buyer journey look like? So they say, hey, right. let's this is, let's say the voluntary, Yeah, this is what we want to do. Let's say, you know, an airline just says, yeah. okay, we actually want to just Voluntary, maybe it's for PR reasons. Sure, and uh, and not just the goodness of their hearts, but they say, okay, we want to devote a hundred million to this. Yeah, what do they do today? So the first step is for them to estimate their carbon footprint, how much carbon their operations emit mm. uh, every year, mm-hmm. and that is already also a pain point for them. Um, we are working on that too, on helping the companies do that faster in a more reliable way. Once they know how much they emit, then they can go and they, they will want to access the widest uh, offering of carbon projects out there. And based on their criteria, choose which projects they want to support by buying carbon credits from those projects to offset their emissions and then be able to claim publicly that they are carbon neutral. And how do they find those projects today? 
So today there are several sources. There are aggregators and retailers and uh, consulting firms that help companies do that. There are brokers, there are traders that buy those carbon credits and resell them later. But it's quite complicated for a buyer to navigate all that if you're new into the world of buying carbon credits. Especially if you have, uh, you, there was a company two weeks ago or something that mm-hmm. said it was like 300 million going to it. Yes, Shell. Shell. Okay, yes. so they say we want to we want to offset our, our uh, carbon impact and and put three hundred million dollars into yeah. this. And I remember the time frame, but yeah, but like how do they find enough? That sounds like a lot of projects. That's right. Yes, that's part of the problem, and it's very fragmented on the side of the supply, right? So you're not, you're not going to find one project that captures three hundred million dollars of mm-hmm. uh, CO two equivalents, right? So part of the challenge is typical problem that a marketplace or an online platform can solve, right? By connecting the parties. So these are the problems that we're trying to solve. And we are starting, uh, let's say the, the lean startup methodology or this YC startup methodology of like, let's find a, a small problem that we can solve, make something people want and earn the right to keep building, right? Mm-hmm. The big vision here is that if the world is going to be serious about solving climate change, then in the next few decades, hundreds of billions of dollars and perhaps trillions of dollars will have to flow from corporations, governments, and consumers towards projects that recapture carbon. Those projects mostly are going to be forest projects, reforestation or deforestation avoidance, although there will be other type of projects as well. And if that happens, there will be a need for a platform that brings trust ease of use, accountability, and speed to the market mm-hmm. so that we can actually make these projects happen on time to avoid catastrophic climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can help build that platform. How many times have you, have you and going below the line now for a sec, <laughs> how many times have you made this pitch in, in coffees and in, in chats with people, even you know your co-founders and, yeah. and your first employees? Hundreds, probably. I don't know. Yeah, because it, every time is a little bit different, though. Right, I mean, just you know, uh, wrapping. But it's 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 clear that you kind of have like tent poles that you're going back to, mm. or that you that you know by heart, and it's it's not pressurized. Mm. It's not, and I would say maybe it's for the podcast, but it, that would be the opposite. A podcast could add, and the recording equipment could add more pressure. But mm. it's actually, yeah, it's very calm. Mm. It's very, which is always mm. ideal. Like it is, yeah. It, there's an Einstein quote of, uh, if you can't explain your subject simply, you don't know it well enough. Right. So you obviously know it so well that you're able to explain it simply. Yeah. And it's probably from one having to explain it so much that you realize just make it simplified, simplified, yeah. simplified, and you've put yourself in that situation hundreds so it's of funny, times. But. Um, I went to a dinner with an investor and he invited me to dinner with his family. All right. Mm-hmm. And when I hadn't explained the idea to him yet, right? Like very high level, maybe. Um, and when we were in the dinner, he had a daughter that's six years old, probably. And he told me, can you explain to my kids your idea? And yeah. I had to explain to their kids. And, you know, I think he did a good job. She understood and she started giving me ideas, right? Oh, you should partner with this satellite company. And I was like, yes, wow. we are going to partner with a satellite company. <laughs> and did he so, invest? She invest? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So um, I do think that, yes, being able to explain your idea in simple terms, but also for any kind of audiences. You're going to have to 
uh, sort of like uh, adapt your pitch for for different audiences for different times, right? Right. Well, in in for a lot of these meetings, it's I just put thirty minutes down because yeah. I really want to know if I'm going to get excited in 30 minutes because everyone that, that this person, this founder is going to need to recruit on board, the co-founders, the employees, yeah. uh, the customers, uh, the, you know, journalists, you rarely even have 30 minutes right. to hook them. And it's at a party and you're telling someone, you know, and then they're like, oh my God, you need to meet so-and-so because, right. or they're in the market for a job or yeah. the journalists, like you don't get. You don't go 30 minutes and not get what the company's doing. And then in minute 43, be like, oh, this is actually awesome. Right. So it's that that time boxing of 30 minutes is, do I understand this? Am I intrigued by it? Right. And I'd certainly, uh, I certainly am on a scale of one to 10. What What is going through my head? Because it's never like binary. It's probably like a nine in terms of, of excitement. Maybe even higher because I'm thinking about what happened before the meeting. I'm thinking about um, your journey as a, a repeat founder. Um, m- even more importantly, your journey of coming up with this this concept, or just even the story of reaching out to the author. Like it's like your bias towards action to reach out to the people that know about this space, as well as your journey of learning about this space. Is is it all is confluence to? To me, building confidence and right. yeah, this is a complete startup. Investing is the riskiest thing out there, sure. um, but it is it is also you know it's the highest rewards of of perhaps anything out there. So in my view, I I love it. It's also the only space I really know. Mm. But these things are starting to add up, and then you add in a marketplace. So then, what's going through my head is uh, net what what are called network effects, mm-hmm. which means. Uh, the more traction a company gets, the more defensible it is. Mm-hmm. Meaning, the bigger the network, um, the bigger effect it has on the defensibility of the mm-hmm. business. And you know that's not the case for Rebel uh, Spicy Chai. You know, <laughs> if a million people buy it tomorrow, that doesn't make the bottle in my hand more valuable. Right. But if I'm a marketplace customer like right. Airbnb, or I'm a customer of Instagram, mm-hmm. then the more people that are on it, that thing in my hand, that Instagram app, or uh, that that Airbnb app becomes actually better, which is so great. I mean, it's like Silicon Valley talks too much about network effects yeah. and doesn't talk nearly enough about them right. all at the same time. And and so marketplace effect, I'm not the expert in this space, so I don't know any competitors. So that's mm-hmm. something that that I likely will follow up with um, yeah. in that nine to 10 range. But that's what's going through, through my head. Mm. And then these little data points of these companies that I know of that are putting these like huge numbers out there right. for the PR benefit, there's now starting to be peer pressure for others right. to put those out there. Uh, there's obviously consumer demand for it. And so that I think is going to, that's yeah. just getting started. And then you top it off with, man, the world would improve by by this company. I won't even say succeeding, by this company existing. Right. Working. Like like your suitcase company, it. I mean, this is something that I can easily get behind knowing that maybe even if it might not be the thing that pushes the world forward, but man, it's in the right direction. I hope so. And if it does work. The other thing that's going through my mind is uh, an equation that I think about. I've written about this before, which is uh, just the, the, the adage here in, in the Valley of the worst you can do is lose one extra money. So it's like, wow, I can have the chance to invest in a company. And by the way, he's going to ask me questions. I imagine right. you're going to also wonder like, can I be helpful? Well, I, because- I was going to tell you that 
in my mind, what's going on right now as you are sort of like uh, expliciting uh, your, your thoughts, what I'm evaluating on you is, is this guy interested on the mission or in becoming rich? And I'm, I try to filter out the people that want to become rich with this idea. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you saying that you're excited about the fact that this can actually improve the world is what I, I'm interested in hearing, right? Because again, startups are a long-term journey mm-hmm. and alignment uh, on all the stakeholders, investors, employees, and uh, you know everybody who touches the company in terms of the mission and the vision are super important. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a two-way journey for sure. And that's something I didn't know uh, or probably I didn't have the, um, the leverage to really get to choose my investors in the past, right? Yeah. Yes, I think that it's super important to ask questions to investors as well. Yeah. What are some of them that are going through your mind right now? So, I mean, definitely I would love, and I asked you the other day a little bit uh, about uh, your experience as a founder, especially in the difficult moments, right? Mm-hmm. And you told me a little bit about uh, the difficult moments. And, and I also heard, you know, uh, on the podcast uh, a little bit about it. So I, that's what I want to know, right? I want to know from success, you learn, but not so much as from failure, from difficult moments, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, you know, those moments are the moments that give you the empathy and the lessons to help others, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the things I would like to know, you know, like what yeah. are the uh, the difficult moments that you had as a founder that think that you think that can that make you more helpful for other founders? You know? mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes you don't, you, we don't have a, a whole lot of time to, to go into it. And, and so the condensed version that, that I often touch on, uh, in the coffee, if it comes up is mm-hmm. I've basically, and, and this is, yeah, this, I also put in the podcast, I've basically seen everything that a founder will see the good and the bad, except for an IPO. I've, I've, uh, seen everything that, that a founder will see from starting in my bedroom, uh, with an idea to moving across the country, uh, four different times, you know, moving to the Bay Area and living in an air mattress for six months and and one bag and living in a house with six guys, <laughs> four bedroom house with that. six guys. Yeah, as a <laughs> as a uh, a grown man and and you know going into you know hiring your eighth employee, your twenty eighth, your eighty eighth employee, having to to make really tough decisions of laying off. 30% of your staff and right. of people that you you touched on in this conversation as well, that you worked so hard to not only recruit, but energize and yeah. and motivate and inspire every single day. And then because of your own mistakes, you are really shaking up their, yeah. their, their life in a major way. You know, they say a job search is one of the top three most stressful things that right. anyone will go through. And I not only can can try to provide insights of, of things that I learned along the way that I, that I uh, wish I'd done differently or in year two I did differently than year one or year five right. than year two and and or have seen from portfolio companies of, of really smart best practices in 2019 that yeah. people are are doing in in certain aspects more than anything it's just uh, the empathy of knowing yeah. what the journey is like the fact that if you call me at 11:30 yeah. at night about a decision that is really keeping you up that you worry about that's that you need to make a call yeah. for tomorrow the context is already there yeah we're 5 7 minutes into the conversation 
Yeah. Um, I know at least emotionally or psychologically yeah. what you're going through and and can think through it from that lens. The other thing that I, you know, and that's, that's I think, the, the macro thematic uh, yeah. side of- Which, by the way, I actually have one specific uh, question, yeah. uh, which is that the other day you mentioned a CEO coach. Mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in getting a CEO coach so I guess the question that I had for you, I was yeah. thinking as I was coming is, uh, what's been your experience having a CEO coach? Do you recommend it? And do you have someone specific to recommend? <laughs> yes, 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 Diego. <laughs> okay. Yes to all of all, right. uh, all of the questions. So um, I do recommend it. I ha- was lucky to have Andreessen Horowitz introduced me to probably two or three different ones. And I asked, you know, what are the best executive coaches? Mm. So I absolutely, I mean, when I was... CEO at 26 and and 27 had 50 employees. I and the biggest company I ever worked for, much less run. Right. I really didn't know what I was doing, and and uh, it took me two coaches that weren't the right fit to find right. the one that was. And for me, the journey was the first one was an executive at a company with you know, had a thousand people under him as as a senior vice president of this company, and then became an executive coach. And we r- resonated on a personality level. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it was great. But I don't think experience-wise, he really knew what it was like to be Got a founder. I mean, it's just you know, sure. when you have twenty-eight employees and you're recruiting another sure. twenty-five, like the things to avoid is very different than right. if you ran a thousand-person uh, part of a large organization. Second person, um, another really great executive coach. He'd been a coach for cannot remember exactly how many years. Also, really awesome ran maybe a 5,000 person part of the org at IBM wow. before they uh, or executive became an executive coach. And so I, I, you can see like the trajectory was no more experience, but it actually was completely different. The third right. person that I selected had been a psychologist for 26 years. Okay. And so he was uh, someone that had therapy background, mm-hmm. which is not only sure. awesome as a CEO because, you know, the company is is paying for you to have this mm-hmm. this type of help, but also in, in my case, the company was I. It was a business expense because obviously sure. your state of mind and decisions are going to sure. greatly impact everybody. So you you uh, that's a good investment uh, for the business, as obviously as well for you. But I chose someone that had been a psychologist for twenty six years, interesting, and had recently become an executive coach. It's kind of on the journey Got with it. me. Maybe it had been one for three years, but he was highly recommended by right. one of the best executive coaches. They all were highly recommended, but I just really vibed with this right. person. And I think one of the things that he really loved about executive coaching was, I think with psychology, you often, as a psychologist, you're dealing with people at their worst. Sure. And executive coaching, you can definitely be at your worst at times. But you're you're dealing with optimizing people that right. have a bit you know bigger wider wingspan that can have sure. Im- sure. that have wider impacts on other employees or sure. uh, thousands hundreds of thousands millions yeah, yeah, of yeah. customers. So he showed this just absolute gracious gratitude nice. for the chance to to meet and work with and understood the company really understood listened to me and then would listen to me babble and then provide four or five minutes of really sage, simple, concise advice. So did you use him more for sort of like strategic business decisions that you were struggling with or for more personal ways of uh, dealing with your own 
psychology, I guess. Both. But I think on the latter part, it was more straightforward with him. Like it was really just like, let me speak and then uh, and talk and then let me get feedback. On the former uh, strategic side, it was more like, here are the different options. Sure. And please highlight if there are options that I don't see. But I I would have so many just from Jeff Jordan on on our board. Uh, one of the best investors in the world, Mark Andreessen, sure. uh, direct line of of communication and advice from him to Chua Chen, our other board members, brilliant investor and and really smart executives on the team. My co-founder, brilliant, um, sure. Caleb, brilliant uh, co-founder. Just I, I, already, I was able to receive great advice and know the option set and then talk about it out loud with, yeah. with Peter, my coach. And so, and then he would help kind of slice and yeah. dice, but a lot of it was just me talking about it, having someone to talk about it out loud. Sure, yeah, articulating your thinking outside of the box of your head um, with someone who's getting a, a track record of the conversations. I think mm-hmm. that in itself is valuable, right? Right. So yeah, and I would absolutely, I would love to recommend yeah, him to he's, to, yeah. he's the executive coach for these great founders that that are much smarter than me. and And so, he also has now had a lot of cycles with with cool. since that was maybe four or five years ago. Cool. Um, so it's I would love to put you in touch with them and I That'll highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the coffees just end like this where we don't have any more time. Sure. But um thank you so much for for letting me record this, Diego. And sure. and I loved here and I heard a little bit about pajama last week, but I, I really got to get the full 360 through through this conversation. What else is going below the line? What's going through your mind now as you're fundraising? Yeah. And where are you well, with the fundraise? We're almost closed. By the time this podcast is out, uh, you'll be closed a long time ago. Uh, so no problems with the SEC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that what's going on in my mind now is I think that uh, building a company is like building a building. Uh, my dad is an architect and I, observe, I, I used to go with my dad to his you know, uh, construction works, right? And... In a building, the foundation is the most important thing, right? And in everything in life, I think, you know, if, you know, in a kid or in a tree, uh, what happens at the beginning is is so important. So I think in a company as well. So I'm trying to be very conscious of every little decision now of who we bring on board, investors, team members, uh, small decisions we make on product, on strategy. Um, We're going to have to live with those decisions for a long time. So... Um, balance of prevention is worth a pound of cure. There you go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the same time, I'm sort of like not putting too much pressure on myself, but just being present and being conscious and trying to not rush into decisions. And yeah, I mean, what, what would have young, what would have, uh, a younger Diego have, have done in this, in this very moment, this, you know, th- Monday afternoon, um, in all of the different paths that you could be choosing, mm. what do you think the younger version of you would have? Well, I think I'll be um, definitely worrying too much about certain things and maybe on a hurry about closing other things, right? And I'm like in peace, right? Okay, everything is moving in the right direction. Decisions are being taken uh, with a lot of thoughtfulness. We might make a mistake and we'll course correct if we do so. But I think that, yeah, more mindfulness, I guess. Which, by the way, meditation has been the secret there. Well, and how much of that is meditation and how much of that would be previous financial success? If you were to really 
think about it, uh, you know, a skeptical person, yeah. first time founder say, well, of course, you know, you've, you've sold two yeah. companies. Mm. Uh, of course you can be patient. Mm. Would that be accurate or would that be missing something? I mean, it? I think I definitely having sort of like some baseline safety net uh, it helps, right? If you are hungry or if you don't know where you're going to sleep uh, tomorrow, it's, uh, you have more pressure on your head for sure. And I was there, you know, I was an immigrant in New York City working as a waiter not even check to check. I was like, okay, how are I going to pay the hostel I'm staying in uh, in a couple of weeks, right? Mm. And that's definitely a hard situation. At the same time, I always knew that I could come back to Argentina and be with my family and be fine, right? Mm -hmm. So definitely having a, a baseline comfort uh, safety net is important. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's, it's more coming from the failures than from the success than this learnings of peace, mindfulness, and thoughtfulness came from, right? And it's knowing that everything will be all right, mm -hmm. right, at the end. Uh, it's like also experience that the worst case scenarios are not that bad. Yeah, right? that's actually, it's funny you say that, because I think it's, I think it was Bertrand Russell that said, one of the best, most liberating things you can do is imagine the absolute worst and be comfortable with that. Yes. And the, I think that stoics. is so, yes, yeah. stoic and, and, vividly go through imagining the worst case scenario and yeah. realize, wow, okay. One thing I'm so doing that. now from the uh, lesson from the Stoics is I'm kind of like putting myself into uncomfortable situations or a situation, extreme situations sometimes. Let me give you an example. The other day I was coming back to my house. I live in the mountains, in the Santa Cruz mountains. And a tree fell and blocked my street and I couldn't get to my house. <laughs> and it was late in the night. And I sent a text, you know, to some friends to see if I could crash in their place and they were all sleeping. I could have gone to a hotel, but I decided to sleep in the car. Mm. And I slept in the car as a homeless person, right? That only has a car. And it was great. You know, yes, mm -hmm. I can sleep in the car and that's fine. I survived, right? Yeah, there's so, there, the, the human body, I think, it's, <laughs> I think they call it like horm hormetic response or hormesis where you under like purposeful stress. Yeah it has this this healthy stimulating effect yeah. for your body and it's it's i think they call it biphasic meaning that you know too much and it's bad for you right but without any of it you miss the chance to actually stimulate for sure uh, your body into a healthier state for sure and and it's i think that's where the whole background of intermittent fasting yeah. and things like that yes. is all about stimulating this yeah. uh, well i do a lot of those state. things i yeah. do a lot of those things to it makes you stronger and it also gives you a sense of like you know, I have encoded on my DNA the ability to survive under very rough situations. My ancestors walk all the way from Alaska to South America, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm, I'm a descendant of the Incas, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I can survive. And uh, worst case scenario is not that bad, right. right? So I think that also comes from experience, to be honest, as well, right? When you're young, you tend to I think that uh, things will be terrible, right? If things fail, right? Yeah. And you, 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 I don't know, you, you worry too much. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it comes from that too. Everything works out in the end. Yeah. So cliche and so yes. damn true. Uh, if, it, if it didn't work out, it's not the end. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. My wife has that <laughs> quote and she reminds me of it right. uh, often. Well, thank you, Diego. Thank, thank you, you so much for sharing with listeners. And I am, I'm really excited about what Pachama is, is doing, I'm, I'm going to do uh, about 24 hours of research and then shoot you an email and happy to answer any other questions that you have for me 
uh, via email or phone, text, uh, whatever. Likewise. Uh, and and I, I'm just so stoked to have the chance to, pumped to have the chance to have uh, met you. And I think what you're building sounds really, really special. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right, buddy. Thank you. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine, as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.